This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Perseverance. when we hire people, we look at their resumes. And uh, when I look at executive resumes, we have an opening for senior VP of marketing. I'll look at that resume and I'll write down next to each of that person's prior employments, how many years he or she spent at that. And then I take an average. And if it's not five years, I toss the resume away. I don't even read it. Okay. I just see how many years, how many years. And if it's not five or more, I throw it away. If it is five, then I look at it in the details, see if that person fits the job and if I want to go to the next stage. So this is something that we are losing in our society, the understanding that it takes a fair amount of time to get anything done. To destroy something, you can do it in seconds. You can destroy a building, you can destroy a country probably in seconds. But to do something value-add, to build something takes time. To build a career takes time. To be effective at your job takes time. So we want people who are going to stay with our company. We're going to invest in them. We're going to train them. We're going to teach them about our company, about what their role is, about our customers, whatever it takes. It takes a long time. So we want people who are going to stay. And we reward people who do stay. I kicked this off very early. And we call them perseverance awards. We have them 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and now 35. There are three people in the company who have now been here 35 years or more. Fantastic perseverance. And of course, they've been successful with the company. They wrote it all the way. So let me tell you a little bit about these rewards. The first award is the three years. It happens to be a watch. I don't happen to be wearing it today, but it's a watch engraved on the back, your start date. It's a nice watch. It's a Casio, it turns out. It's, well, Everything we do is sort of special. I, I spent hours choosing the watch, okay? The watch happens to be something called an Echo Drive. I don't know why we're talking about it here, but it's, it, it talks about the level of detail that I'm involved in. Echo Drive watch. It is run by solar power. You don't see it. It looks like a fine watch, but there are solar cells inside the watch, and it's chargeable even by room light. Room light. And once charged, it can stay in the dark in your drawer for six months and still keep the time, okay? You never have to buy batteries. It's a fantastic watch, okay? Fantastic concept. 
So it's perseverance. That watch is going to be around as long as you're going to be around. So that's the three-year thing. We give you a nice watch with your, the, the date when you began engraved on the back. Then it accelerates from there. I won't go through every one of them, but I think at five years, it's three extra days vacation and $500 to spend wherever you want. And I'll, I'll, I'll go up a little bit more. I think at 15 years, we send you and your spouse, friend, whatever, you and your guest on a trip uh, to anywhere you want in the world to visit the 10 wonders of the world. It's worth about $10,000 and it includes $1,000 of spending money just after 10 years, right? Now, now, getting back to the watch, you see, most companies, when you retire, they give you a watch. What the heck do you need a watch for when you retire, right? You don't have to watch the time in it. You don't have to keep track of time when you retire. It's when you're starting you need the friggin' watch. And that's why we give you a watch of three. So getting back to the 10 years. So we have it all planned out. We give you the certificate, and all you have to do is tell my assistant, Linda Sincata, where you want to go and everything else is taken care of for you. All the reservations are made, everything's done for you at 10 years. And it goes from there. 15 years or 20 years. Uh, let's see, 20 years. Yes, the 20 years is a party, party like a rock star with, with as many friends as you can invite. I think it's worth $20,000 at 20 years. And, and here are the rock star places and the hotels and the ballrooms and everything. Invite as many people as you want to that party. Then at 30 years, we make you a philanthropist. We set up an account at Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund. We fund that account with $25,000. And that account is yours. You can give those monies away. And whichever charities you want, I don't even have to agree with them. I, you know. That, that, that costs me a little bit of my brain because there are some things I, I prefer you don't donate it to, but hey, it's a free world. It's your money now, $25,000. Give it in any amounts to anybody you want. So we're making our employees, we're giving you the opportunity to be a philanthropist. What other companies do that? Now recently, I'm gonna jump forward to 35 years, $35,000 to help you do your bucket list whatever you want this is it this is the time you're old enough make that list have fun because otherwise people probably wouldn't do it and that's a requirement that you do it on your bucket list this is not to be to pay down the mortgage it's not for the grandkids uh, education it's for your bucket list and we require that you tell us how you spent the money we want to share in that joy so that's what perseverance means to us we value it and we pay you to persevere. We reward you to persevere. And thanks for that, Dr. Bob. And if you're listening and you run and own a business, take heart how you treat your people. Well, what you do with that money and what you do with that time will determine outcomes. Perseverance. Life lessons from Dr. Bob here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And recently, our own Joey Cortez went to a fascinating event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters to what they call the home office in Bentonville, Arkansas, to pitch their American-made products in a Shark Tank fashion to be carried in their over 11,000 stores. It's a terrific democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products over the next 10 years. And now Joey brings us the story of a married couple he met there. Hugh Jarrett and Nicole Jarrett were owners of Jarrett Industries. Attorneys by day, inventors by night. In recent years, this couple has made a marital tradition out of Walmart's open call. This year, we're selling a insect protective sock to keep ticks from getting to your skin, to Lyme disease, alpha-gal, different things like that. And then we're also pitching a double-dipper bowl, which is a divided uh, single-serve bowl that's a hands-down winner. The first year, we had our taco plate. And absolutely, we were nervous. We had no, we had never ever dealt with Walmart. We'd never dealt with anybody, but kind of some mom and pop uh, kitchen stores. Now we'd been selling taco plates for five years. It's the greatest thing in the Mexican food industry ever. So when you're cooking tacos at home and you're going from the kitchen to the table, your tacos fall over, all your stuff spills out, and it's just irritating. It ruins the whole experience. So, and it's hard to fix them. <laughs> Well, so get them to stand up. So we're we to came up, yeah, we invented a, a plate that has ridges, so it holds your tacos, hard shell or soft shell, upright. It has a divider for rice beans, a place for salsa, things like that. So you can you can fix and eat your your tacos easier. When he was single, he literally cooked it probably four nights a week. Was, yeah, right. He had this. Did you have this before we were dating? Before grads? Yeah, was it was, it, it was in, in college? college is when I came up with the idea. We went to, I went to grad school and then law school. He went to law school up here, and we started dating then, and he had it. And he went, and I remember we were dating, he went and got some foam at Toys R Us yeah. and molded it. I was trying to figure out my dimensions. So it was Toys R Us and stuff called foam, and you can kind of mold it and all that. So I had a, an old El Paso taco shell with the foam, and I was figuring out my dimensions using that. So that's how I came up with the actual dimensions of the plate. So then and, skip to us having it. We had sold half a million in five years, yep. just us, and then we came to open call and sold a million in 30 minutes. That's right. By the grace of God. Yep. And so that is why our experience is not the typical, we, right. but we, we really have, we enjoyed have, it. Yeah, these means have big shoes because we sold a million items. Yeah, the we first got a little spoiled the first year. <laughs> That's right. The Jarrett's from Arkansas revolutionized the taco game. And for Walmart's sixth annual open call event, Hugh and Nicole would pitch yet another common sense solution to a common Taco Tuesday problem. So we were having tacos one night. We had many nights, and our McCall was our ten-year-old was born by then. So he was two yeah, or three. That's right. And I would get out individual bowls to put like salsa, cheese dip, guac. He was broadening his horizons then, eating other dips. And I said, I am tired of getting out three separate bowls for three individual dipping. I said, I want one bowl that has a divider that I can put my dips in the same bowl, but it's just for me. And he, this is no joke, he slaps the table and goes, 
baby, you're a genius. That's our next product. And I went, no, 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 no. I don't want to pay for any more steel mold. Anyways, he, and I told him kind of what I thought, and he ran with it, and so that's how that was. very well also. And my, yes. And their second product that they're pitching this year is addressing something a bit less tasty, but providing more safety. The bug walker socks. He invited, invented these, the double cuff first is waiter socks for hunting. For duck hunting. And then I said, we're going to a Razorback game one night basketball. And I said, hey, go get those prototype waiter socks. And he was like, why? And I said, just go get them. And I was trying to hook my skinny jeans into my Uggs. And I took them, <laughs> took the inside cuff, because I didn't like tucking my socks into my jeans. I didn't like how it felt. And so I said, I, I put that underneath, took them in, I sipped the Uggs, I go, Maybe we could sell these to girls as boot socks. He goes, baby, you're a genius. You just doubled, doubled our market. market. <laughs> and so then from there, we started going, well, what other, you know, applications could this have? And we got to thinking about industrial things, people who are stepping into to, um, suits. And then it turned into, wait a minute, we found out that sand fleas are worse than mosquitoes. So we started saying, we might could pitch this to the military and get these socks treated. And because we have a utility patent, you know, well, at least nobody else is supposed to do it. They're, you know, they can't legally do it. And so, anyways, that's how this was born. It's kind of grown. It went from a duck hunting sock to, and it's grown into multiple branches. And he also point. has bug sleeves that um, you can wear that look like the ones that sometimes you'll see athletes wearing. Those are treated and good for 70 washes. And so, I mean, really, it's a huge problem now. We have a, a close friend, that, or we have a friend we've become pretty good friends with now our, through our signs, and she has the alpha gal disease because she got bitten by the rocky. That's the, uh, the lung star tick. That's lung the star one tick, where that's if, right. you, if you get bitten by it, you can't eat red meat. She can't ever. even cook pork in the house anymore for the boys. She can't yeah. cook bacon because she says when that's you and smell it, she that's says it. you're actually inhaling molecules. And so she can't cook it in the house. She can have, like, fish and chicken. But she said she's on the milder end of it. The other people, I mean, it just gets worse. Yeah, so a it's a, it, more, it really more is. More people have that. More people have that than you, than you She think. said there's a whole group in Arkansas that has a website for it. And I, we've just been doing so much learning about it that, I mean, all these things that if you just stop it from coming up. And, you know, the great thing with his inventions is they're – always extremely functional is something everybody really does need and they look good so when you can hit something that everybody needs and you can afford and that everybody can afford and then it looks good too you know because the women want it to look good then you usually got a got a winner so right. so anyway. how do y'all meet we we knew a bunch of the same people in college so, like a bunch of my pledge sisters, yeah. a bunch of his pledge brothers from where I was, and yeah, so we knew each other. Just kind of ran together. We knew each other in college, and I tricked her into going to on a date when I was a senior. Right before no, we, when, no you, when I was getting ready to go to law school, I tricked her into a date, and you were a one L. And, 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 how did you trick her? I told her that I a really bunch of didn't folks. Know long yeah, she didn't we know this. Like till after our first son was born. Yeah, I didn't I was know like, those There's a whole bunch of us like going sure. going out tomorrow night. You know, if you you know if you'd like to go. And nobody was ever going. So she's like, yeah, I'd be fine. And so then I called her, and I was like, hey. I was like, hey. I was like, everybody else dropped out, but do you still want to go? So she's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, uh, yeah, yeah. my roommate's not back. I had to come back early, a week early, because I was teaching as a TA. And um, 
about halfway through, I was a comm major. I know that's shocking from my talk. And I was watching his nonverbals and he was messing with his hands a lot and like doing things that people do when they're nervous. And I was like, you know, it's the first time I'd had a handheld cell phone for a week, my little Nokia. And so I went to the restroom and I called my mom and I was like, mom, I think he thinks this is a date. What do I do? She goes, I guess you got there and finished eating and finished the date. And so I was like, Okay. Uh, yeah, I did get a second date. Yeah, it worked out. He did. So, uh, he today, did. today is our 14th anniversary. Oh, oh congratulations! And you've been listening to you and Nicole Jarrett, and they're in Bentonville, Arkansas, on their anniversary, doing what so many Americans want to do, which is well, start their own business and grow their own business. And we love these stories, and these are our open call. Stories, part of the open call process in which Walmart seeks to take 500 entrepreneurs and push their product into the over 11,000 stores that they run. And by the way, to give you an idea of the impact that Walmart has on the ordinary American's life, a global insight study revealed that over 100 million Americans shopped at Walmart each week last year and that the average family saved over $2,500. And that's just remarkable. And how did they do it? Well, three officers at Boston Consulting Group wrote about the revolutionary nature of their approach. And it turns out that Sam Walton turned the conventional retailing approach on its head. Instead of having senior executives make purchasing and stocking decisions, Walmart let the customers decide. And by the way, they learned what their customers wanted by their remarkable inventory management process. And of course, what resulted was the following, and this is the quote from that Boston Consulting report. Instead of the retailer pushing products into the system, customers pull the products when and where they need them. And this is the miracle of the free enterprise system, and nobody does it better than Walmart, saving Americans all that money each and every day. When we come back, the story of you and Nicole Jarrett, here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and the you and Nicole Jarrett story. They're entrepreneurs, inventors with a family and full-time jobs and a lot for a married couple to manage. But with their faith, well, they stay grounded. Here's you and Nicole on how their faith plays a role in their business. You know, there's different ways to approach it. And you know, probably the best in, in business, the best approach is not to scream at everybody they're going to hell That's right. if they don't convert. But again, back to the little things, you can conduct yourself in a way that you hope reflects well on the Lord. That's right. And if conversations come to... up, you can talk about it, but it's not, you know, I think, I think in the business world, it's more of your everyday conduct 
Gotcha. Right, and, and living an example. And I will talk about screaming it. Screaming at everybody. But that's it. he couldn't have said it better. That's exactly right. And I do talk about it when people ask us because I've... I, honestly, I feel funny if I don't say it because I feel like it's us taking the credit. And I mean, honestly, he's allowing us to take part in seeing success with oh, our business. Certainly, you all pray over your business. I think I've probably shied away from ask, for asking for success more so that I ask for just show me how to act, show me you know, just you know, help me do right. I don't, I don't think I. I don't think I've necessarily ever specifically asked for him to give me success. I've just asked, you know, give us guidance. And always pray that, you know, that the Lord's will be done, but give him the right words, or if it's both of us, you know, help us not fumble, help me not fumble over my words. He, he usually does pretty well because he's short-winded, unlike his wife. <laughs> That's why you compliment each other exactly. Well, right? Exactly. And the, thankfully, they usually edit me out. <laughs> oh, stop, stop. We'll correct that in they, editing. And I, they, I usually hope they do. But Hugh would never edit Nicole out of their business ventures. Anybody who has fought the battle of going from, from like starting a business, and now ours isn't huge, it's a decent business, but anybody who has started one cannot give enough credit to your spouse. Because if you don't have a true team effort going, if you don't have both people behind the product, it is so much more difficult to get there. Because, you know, you're sitting there, and we were in in our early 20s, and we're going to commit thousands of dollars towards something that has absolutely no guarantee. It is, you are just, you could possibly be chunking it, you know, you could be chunking it out the window, honestly. And if you don't, you know, if, if you're, your spouse is not on board with that, the odds of you taking the leap and pushing and going ahead are so much lower. So I tell anybody who will listen, if you put me in a foxhole in any situation, I'm going with her because she is an absolute warrior and, is, and is, has, been, has been as much, if not more, a part of pushing this than I have. Because I, I can come up with random stuff, but actually pushing it and getting it out there is her. We've got some good folks that work with us, too. Um, our manufacturers in Pre-Grove, so everything's which right here for, for our plastics, for our plastics, yeah. which is just 30 minutes from here if you're not, I mean, well, 20. from Fayetteville. It's easier to keep tabs on your manufacturer. It is, but we like keeping it, it, with here. it With it here. It's easier to get to the people. I don't really know how you could exactly control quality control the way we do no. if, if we didn't have it here. because we, I'll give you all a story. That the, I've, the, I'm repeating myself, but they're here we were doing the double dippers so we we're getting ready to have 150,000 of those go out oh, yeah. and I'm sitting in the movies with her and her parents and the manufacturer calls and we're getting and ready says, to see the founder that he wanted to see, yeah. to so see with Michael Keaton because it's about we're getting ready to ship out 150,000 of these things in a week and they say all the labels are falling off they're like we're packing these things labels are falling off we don't know what we're going to do you know labels are falling off so I was like I'll be right there. So I Uber from the movies to our house, get in my truck, drive out went, there. Well, no, you went to get, like, popcorn or something. Yeah, I didn't tell them where I was. And then, <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, then, and then after a while, my dad goes, yeah. are you sure he's okay? Is he in the restroom? What's that? You know, did, it, did he, did, is the line long? What's happening? Did somebody but, get him? But anyhow, we were able to get out there. We realized that the, they were putting the, 
they were putting the labels on the bowls too hot, and that was what caused it. So they cooled the bowls down before they put the labels on. Problem solved. You can't do that if you have somebody that's across the world or across the country. Hugh and Nicole are a dynamic duo. Their skills, they complement each other, and their business ventures are just getting started. He comes up, I mean, there's things in our house right now that aren't on the market that are still some of my favorite things he invented, like the sink brush holder. Okay, you know, like a little sink brush you use to scrub your dishes. Where do you put that? You're scrubbing dirty stuff with it. I don't want it on my counter. And then it's just laying in the sink. Well, then kids, we have two boys, so I live with my boys, even the two dogs are boys. And so, anyways, and they just dump stuff in the sink. Well, so he came up with a holder, and he takes a magnet, and it glues to the underside of the sink. So or sticks, as a, and then you can. So you don't have to have a stainless steel sink, which we do, but that's not what does it. That's actually not magnetic. It's ceramic, anything. He puts it in there, and it holds the brush there. So it's, and then when you need the sink and need more space, you just, you know, you just pick it up and set it aside. Or if you ever want to move it to somewhere else, it <laughs> doesn't show the underneath. It's under way up underneath it's, the sink. It's one of our better, my better products. It but is. I just could not convince anybody else to buy them that's not but, true but, it's, but it the truth is works. a lot of the things that you can butt heads on can also be a huge um strength and complement to each other i think it has been so in business Absolutely. there's things he comes up with um invention wise that i really do think are good ideas but if it doesn't have mass appeal i just say i don't know if that has mass appeal though and typically unless you're selling something that has high margins High cost, you're going to have something that's a high-end product if you're doing low volume, or you got to have something that's a lower cost item at high volume. And so there's some things that just we get to enjoy at our house that may, you know, come around someday. And um, that that's his aim. And running this business as a side hustle is no easy task. At times, we are spread very thin, having a young family. We had a we have a ten year old, our four year old. He just turned four. Um, we are very very close with our families. Um, unfortunately, mine live four hours away in Texarkana, Arkansas, where I grew up. His live in Four City, Arkansas, where he grew up. So both our parents four hours one way, four and a half the other. You know, our friends up here have to become our family. Um, you. I think that honestly partly makes you, um, I was always independent and so was Hugh, but I think it makes you more independent and then also to a degree, I don't want to say codependent, but we lean on each other a lot. And that sounds like half the couples I know talking over each other, interrupting to correct stories. And that's what Americans sound like. That's what American families and couples sound like in Bentonville, no less, on their anniversary, pitching their wares. Well, what happened? While their Double Dipper product did not get brought on by Walmart, their Bug Blocker socks made it to the next round and will be carried in over 100 Walmart stores. To purchase the Bug Blocker socks and their taco plate, which I'm going to get, go to Walmart.com and to see the rest of you and Nicole's products, Go to jarrettindustries.com. That's jarrettindustries.com. 
And again, the event was the open call where Walmart opens their doors to 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters and pitch their wares. And by the way, they're going to put into their 11,000 stores some of those winners' products and all to hopefully democratize the process and put an additional $250 billion worth of American-made product into Walmart stores. You and Nicole Jarrett's story, in a way, the American entrepreneur's story and the hobbyist story, too, here on Our American Stories. Hey, all. This is Joey Cortez, a producer of Our American Stories. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. It's you, our listeners, that make this show possible. More of Our American Stories after the break. Continue with our American stories, and now a story from one of our regular contributors, Bert Rossica. In 2012, for reasons known only to Providence, I decided to type a list of the reasons why a manual typewriter is better than a computer. My intent when I started was to come up with 99 reasons. The reason I settled on 99 was because back in 1985, Tom Boswell, who was then the beat reporter for baseball for the Washington Post, was given an assignment by his editor to come up with the 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And as he tells the story, he comes into the office at 9 in the morning and his editor tells him he needs on his desk by 12 o'clock, at least 99 reasons. Boswell goes back to his office a little anxious that he may or may not be able to accomplish the task in the time allotted, and proceeds to write on his typewriter. According to him, it took him 45 minutes to complete the task. And it became an instant classic and part of the pantheon of baseball. The reason I had a newfound appreciation for the typewriter had to do with the fact that our then 12-year-old son shows up one day with a typewriter. I asked him, why in the world did you buy a typewriter? And he told me, I always wanted one, Dad. I thought, all right. He got the typewriter at a thrift store in our town, and the reason he was at the thrift store was because at the age of 12, he decided he did not want to attend the cotillion at his school wearing khaki-colored chinos. He wanted to wear Nantucket red-colored chinos. And I told my wife, I don't feel like spending like $100 at Brooks Brothers or Nordstrom's or some other place for a kid to wear Nantucket red chinos for six months and then grow out of them. So I said, take him to the thrift store. So he came back from the thrift store 
without the chinos, but with the typewriter. So, I said, what did you pay for it? $15, Dad. $15 for a typewriter, okay. The guy wanted 30, Dad, but I told him it didn't work, so I'd only give him 15. I tried to get it for 10, but he insisted on 15. The kid's 12 years old, negotiating with the thrift store manager or owner or whatever he was. So he has this $15 typewriter that doesn't work. Why'd you get a typewriter if it doesn't work? He said, I figured you could fix it, Dad. I said, all right, it's a reasonable answer. Let's take it down to the bench and see what we can do. So I take it down to my workbench. Finally, we get the thing working. Well, we proceed to then argue over who gets to use the typewriter. I wanted to use it. He didn't want to let me. I argued, I fixed it. He argued, I paid for it. Why don't you get your own typewriter? So I did. Then I got another, and then another, and then another. And the next thing I know, I'm collecting and restoring old manual typewriters. And I started writing. And in the process of that, I realized writing on a typewriter is way more enjoyable than writing on a computer. One day I'm typing away on the typewriter, writing heaven knows what. And I'm thinking, this is great. I also start thinking about the Boswell list. So what if I can come up with 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer? So, put a piece of paper in the typewriter, and I started to type. And here's what I came up with. I'm going to go through the list. Some of them are a little redundant. In fact, I think some are absolutely redundant. Now, for those of you who have never typed on a typewriter, you're just going to have to use your imagination. And for those of us old enough to have typed on a typewriter, I think some of these things might strike a chord. Speaking of which, the number one reason is there are no power cords. Two, no cords connecting to a printer. Three, no cords connecting to an external hard drive. Four, no cords connecting to anything. Five, no software to install. Six, no software to download. 10. A typewriter can't crash. 11. No fatal system error messages. 24. No font to choose. 25. No font color to choose. Unless you have a two-tone ribbon. 26. No font size to choose. 27. You don't have to format your font. 29, no print button to push. 33, no leaving your desk to retrieve your printed work. 34, the typewriter can reflect your mood. If you are upset and you type harder as a result, it will show in your work because the keys will penetrate the paper. 39, I like baseball. Shirley Povich, use the typewriter. Need I say more?
40. There is no chance what you type will be uploaded inadvertently to the internet for all the world to see whether you want it to or not. Typewriters are secure and private. 41. There is no spell check. You need to learn how to spell and use a dictionary. In the process, you will improve your vocabulary. 42. There is no grammar check. Read Strunk and White and learn how to use it. You will improve your grammar. 43. No annoying perforated red underlines telling you something is misspelled. 44. No annoying perforated green underlines telling you something isn't punctuated properly. They are not always correct anyway. 51. If you are working late and happen to fall asleep at the keyboard with one of your fingers pressing against the key, you won't wake up later to discover that you have just typed 2,359 pages of the letter K. Fifty-three, no mouse. Fifty-six, you don't get interrupted with emails. Fifty-seven, no one tries to friend you. Sixty-seven, when I am working on my typewriter, it can't be confused with playing solitaire or shopping on the web. Seventy-one, when I type, I am not distracted by all the other things on a computer that are ultimately less fulfilling. 72. Most of the good old typewriters were made in America. 77. There are no gamers on typewriters. 78. If a typewriter breaks, they rarely, if ever, do. You take it to some old guy that has interesting stories to tell, rather than some young kid that doesn't know anything. You may not know it, but you probably have more in common with that old guy, even if you're not old. 79. You don't need extended warranties. You can't get them anyway. 83. If someone sees you or hears you typing on a typewriter, they will stop and ask you about it, and you will have something interesting to discuss. No one ever asks me about my computer. 91. If I want to quote-unquote carbon copy someone, I get to use real carbon paper. 92. Now my kids can learn what real carbon paper is and why they CC someone. 93. Another personal one. I now have a use for those three bottles of whiteout I have been saving in my desk for so many years. 99. You never have to reboot your typewriter. And what a terrific piece by Bert Rossica. 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer. I still have one. I don't use it, but my dad still does. He types everything up on little cards. When I get a birthday card, it, the, the envelope is typed. He is still hacking away at the typewriter and loves it. And by the way, I really do remember that Tom Boswell piece in the Washington Post. It is dazzling. And that's 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And we got to call Tom and see if he can do that. It was written many years ago. 
but my goodness, it still stands. By the way, one of my favorites on our show, Mike Levin, who is the COO and the president of Las Vegas Sands, ran Holiday Inn Express, a great hotel guy in the business for 50-plus years and a legend. He sent us 54 things I learned in 54 years. If you have a story, a list, send it to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Bert Rossica's 99 Reasons Why a Typewriter is Better Than a Computer here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything. And periodically, we tell stories about sports. But as you've come to know, they're not just sports stories, any more than those great stories on ESPN, those 30 for 30 stories, or sports stories. We're going to spend an hour talking about Coach Dean Smith of the University of North Carolina. He passed in 2015, but we are here to remind people of the virtues of this man and stories about this man. If you aren't a coach, you'll still want to listen. If you run a business, if you run a family, if you have any influence at all in your life with other people, you're going to want to learn from the very best about how to lead. And that's what Dean Smith was. He was a leader, he was a teacher, and of course, he was a coach. His basketball bloodlines ran as deep as the Carolina blue sky. His coach at the University of Kansas, Fog Allen, learned the game from the man who invented it and after whom basketball's Hall of Fame is named, James Naismith. Winning was also in Dean Smith's bloodline. Under Coach Allen, he was a backup guard on the Kansas team that won the 1952 NCAA title, and he was runner-up the following year. He scored only one point in those two championship games, but it was from the bench sitting near his coach that a sports giant was birthed. He would go on to mentor two of the next generation's great coaches, fellow Hall of Famers Larry Brown and Roy Williams. Great coaching apples, it turns out. Don't fall far from great coaching trees. Dean Smith was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1931. His dad was a teacher and a high school basketball coach. His mom was a teacher too, but it was from his dad that he learned the value of every human being and their potential. Kansas was a highly segregated state at the time, but that didn't stop his dad from putting a black player, Paul Terry, on his team. In the 1933-34 state tournament, Terry was banned from playing by state officials. Rather than hamper that team's performance, it spurred them on. They ended up winning the state title. When Smith was 15, his family moved to Topeka, where he played basketball, football, and baseball in high school and earned an academic scholarship to the University of Kansas. He would go on to coach briefly at Kansas and at the Air Force. And then came the big shot at North Carolina. He was replacing the legendary Frank McGuire, who had led a team to a 32-0 season and an NCAA championship not long before. Things didn't go very well the first year. Here's one of his players on one of the early teams, legendary NBA player and great college player, Billy Cunningham. To say it was difficult times for him is an understatement. He was being hung in effigy, uh, 
the coaches, everyone was questioning his coaching ability, what he was doing, alumni, students, wasn't very many good things. Matter of fact, I found something from the old Daily Tar Heel of January 13, 1965, and I just took a little portion of it out. It's a quote. Yeah, I know Dean has a big job to do, and if he can't keep up with the traditions of the fine Carolina teams, he should start looking for, a smaller, for smaller shoes to fill. And the bottom says, name withheld. I hope he's here tonight. <laughs> And those were tough years for Coach, and Billy Cunningham continues on Dean Smith's early years. You know, they say you learn more from losing than winning. Well, we made sure he got enough of that. And, and uh, one of the things, though, we taught him is humility, number one. How could you be a cocky, wise guy coaching teams that were 8-9, and 12-12, and 12, you know, didn't make it through the ACC tournament, didn't do, really didn't do very much of anything. So humility, we got that covered for him. <laughs> Loyalty. It was only the players in his immediate family that would talk to him. I mean, no one had anything to do. Coach Smith, they were, all they wanted to do was get someone new in. You know, coaching and recruiting, which it come down to, and you saw that there, is that he learned that either he changed the style and started coaching, in the proper way, and went out and got some decent players because he surely was tired of watching us. And then that's when things started, and obviously he went on to become, if not the greatest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And by the way, Billy Cunningham was speaking before he sold out Dean Smith Center at the University of North Carolina. This was just days after he died. All the players came back, all the people who knew him, and all the kids. The place was just packed. And we're bringing you parts of these speeches to celebrate this great man's life. Up next was retired president of Converse Sneakers, Mickey Bell, who happened to be graduating, who happened to be a graduate of the class in 1975, and who said Dean would have hated all of this attention. As I look out over this huge crowd, I can't help but think how Coach Smith would absolutely hate this. As you know, he did not like to be center of attention. He did not want to... Um, um, be in the spotlight. He was a very humble man, and he would never accept or really understand why people came from all over the country and all over the state to be here to honor him. Yet if anybody deserved a celebration, it was Coach Smith. And Mickey Bell then asked the question rhetorically to the crowd, why me? Why am I speaking? When Coach Williams called me last week, he said that he and the family wanted me to speak. I had the same thought that you did when you saw the list of speakers today. Why Mickey Bell? <laughs> For you see, I was not an All-American. I didn't play in the NBA. My jersey is up there, my number, up in the rafters, but some guy named O'Corn came up and put his name on it. Besides, when you look at the other speakers here today, they're all legends. Antoine Jameson, Phil Ford, Eric Montross. I said, Coach, didn't you want another star to speak here today? And Roy reminded me that Coach Smith gave e equal treatment to every player, from a walk-on to a superstar. 
Yes, said, yes, Roy said, all the speakers achieve great basketball uh, uh, accomplishments. But everyone thought it'd be great to have someone on the other end of the spectrum to make a presentation. <laughs> so I said to Roy, let me get this straight. What you really are saying, you want a player to speak that had limited talent, limited scoring ability, was slow, couldn't really jump, played a little, and contributed some. Is that right? And Roy said, yes. And I said, well, I'm your man. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Mickey Bell, from Phil Ford, from so many of his great players, and the aforementioned Roy Williams, you're hearing his name a lot. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life of Dean Smith here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the life of Dean Smith. We're celebrating his life, and we're hearing from so many of the people who knew him, from great players to not-so-great players, as you're about to hear from Mickey Bell, who continues to talk about all the debts of gratitude he owed this great coach. Besides, how could I say no? Coach Smith never said no to any of requests I ever made from him. Well, I'll take that back. When I was a senior... I went up to Coach Smith and I said, Coach, when we go in the four corners, do you think I should be the one in the middle of the four corners handling the ball instead of Phil Ford? <laughs> and I remember his answer. He just said, no. <laughs> like you over the last week, I have been reading and listening to all the tributes to Coach Smith. They have made me smile. They have made me reflect. And yes, that made me cry. But I'm so pleased that through these tributes, Coach Smith is now understood by everyone around the world of how great he was. Over the years, my friends who never met Coach sometimes would come up to me and say, Mickey, was he that good? What was so special about him? And that really is an impossible thing to answer completely. For how do I explain that yes, he was a great coach, but he was even a better person. How do I explain to someone that life, his life was guided by principles and he never ever wavered from them? Yes, we all have things we believe in, but how many of you can say that you never waver from them? How do you explain to someone how he made all that played for him a man? Someone who challenged us every day to get better on the court and off the court. He coached you to be a better basketball player for four years. He coached you to be a man for a lifetime. How do I explain to someone all the life lessons he taught us while we were here? Lessons like the power of his positive words. He was the most positive man I ever met. He was always encouraging you. Now, he could get mad, uh, I think all the players here knew that when that whistle blew hard, he clapped his hands together and said, get on the line, we'll get something accomplished today. We were in trouble. But he was all, always positive. It was always when we make the free throw, not if we make the free throw. When we steal the ball versus if we steal the ball. 
the glass to Coach Smith was always half full. How do I explain to someone that everything he did was with dignity and class? He never talked about winning, only improving. He never embarrassed a player. He was both a humbled winner and a gracious loser. He never uttered a single cuss word while I was at Carolina. And believe me, my play deserved a couple of cuss words. <laughs> How do I explain to someone the lesson of loyalty? You saw that every year during senior day. No matter the opponent, no matter how highly ranked they were, or no matter how important the game was, the seniors were going to start. His principle of loyalty far exceeded his goal of winning. How do I explain to someone the lesson that little things do matter? Did you fully touch the line in sprints? Did you help your teammate up once he dove on the floor? Are you on time? I look at every player right here that played for him. They're all nodding their heads because we knew that on time to Coach Smith meant five minutes early. And his lesson there was that there was no shortcuts in the game, just like there's no shortcuts in life. He always said little things equate to huge success. How do I explain the lessons of preparation leads to calmness? Duke game down eight, 17 seconds. All these stories you've heard were true. I was in the huddle. I'm leaning over his left shoulder. He says, we're in great shape. <laughs> we got them right where we want them. <laughs> Isn't this fun? Because you see, we had prepared or practiced so much for late game situations. He was totally calm and positive. His calmness against adversity is something I try to do even today. How do I explain the life lessons that family and friends are the most important? There's a special bond among all the Carolina basketball family. We might be generations apart, yet we know we were part of something very special, and we have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Other, sco other schools have tried to emulate what Coach Smith created, but there is only one Carolina. When my son was born, I received a handwritten note congratulating me on the birth of my son, Michael. Now, I'd been out of school for many, many years. I didn't call him. I didn't tell him the name of my son. Yet he took the time out to write me a note congratulating me on his birth. And when I marveled at this later when I saw him, his response was, Mickey, that's what friends do. Wow. It is well documented how Coach Smith's innovations impacted the game of basketball. The four corners, secondary break, have all been adopted by coaches both here and abroad. But one of his innovations transcended basketball. It's now seen in all team sports. That, that innovation is pointing at your teammate after a great play. You saw it on a key play in the recent Super Bowl. Tom Brady throws a pass to the receiver, the receiver jumps up, points back at Brady, and Brady points back at him. It was Coach Smith's way of thanking the player that had just made the pass. Because to Coach Smith, it was all about team and teammate. Just think, that simple gesture epitomized what Coach Smith was all about. If he was here today, as Billy said, he would really not like this uh, praise on him. 
He would be up here pointing at people. He would say, thank you, players. He would say, thank you, Coach Guthridge. He would say, thank you, students. He would say, thank you, Roy Williams. And I think all of us should thank Roy Williams for keeping the values that Coach Smith created ongoing here in Chapel Hill. And that point to a pastor was the biggest deal. No one had ever seen it before. Guys pointing at each other and giving each other credit immediately and spontaneously on a court. People copied the North Carolina way, but it was the North Carolina way. Mickey Bell went on to thank his coach in these final words. For 40 years, every time I saw a coach, he would always say, thank you. And I'm not sure what he thought me, was thanking me for, but today I want to thank him. I want to thank him for giving a guy with limited t- talent, remember the guy that couldn't jump, couldn't shoot, couldn't run, a chance to be part of the basketball family. Thank you, coach, thank you. And in closing, if your friends, if your friends come up to you, if your children, or even if your grandchildren come up and ever ask you, what was Coach Smith like? Simply reply, he was the best. Thank you. And then came up Phil Ford, one of the greatest point guards in college history, ended up coaching at North Carolina, and he started things off with a funny story. It must have been my second or third game, my first year as an assistant coach here back on the staff. And the first two games, I didn't say anything. You know, I was really nervous. I was in awe, you know. But this particular game, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach this game. I'm going to help out. So, you know, J.R. was playing. And we'd come down court. We'd change sides of the court with the ball, like we were taught to do, make three or four passes, throw it into J.R. J.R. would kick it out. He'd get a little deeper. We'd kick it back into him. He'd miss a one-foot jump hook. The other team would come down the court, make one pass, guy shoot a three-point shot, and we got a hand in the face, and it went in. So this happened three or four times down the court, and I said, I'm going to coach a little bit right now. I say, hey, coach, you think we ought to call a timeout? He looks at me with a straight face and says, what are we going to tell them? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're getting the shots we want to get. They're taking the shots we want them to take. That was my first lesson in coaching right there, I'm telling you. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of these talks. And wait till you hear Roy Williams. It's just worth it's it's worth the wait, folks. And by the way, Phil Ford, when he was recruited by Dean Smith, said this in an article right after his death. My mom, when she first met him, thought he was the dean of the school. That's the way Mr. Smith carried himself, like the dean of an academic program. And that more than 95% of his players graduated is a record that would make any college dean proud. When we come back, more on the life of Coach Dean Smith, his story, his players' stories, North Carolina's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Coach Dean Smith. And you're going to be hearing more from Phil Ford, other players, and of course, Coach Roy Williams. What a speech he gives. It's worth the wait. And all of this happened at the Dean Dome, as it's affectionately called, on the bucolic, beautiful campus at the University of North Carolina, where Coach Smith taught young men how to be grown men for decades. Phil Ford, by the way, before we go to another clip and his talk, he said this about Coach Smith. He was about the only coach who told me I was not going to start. But my mom sat me down and explained to me that when I was a senior, I could then be assured that Coach Smith wouldn't be promising another high school All-America my starting spot when he was a freshman. And I would never have thought about it that way. Right there and then, Coach Smith was teaching me how to be a man and how to think like one. Back to Phil Ford's speech, and he starts to get emotional right about here. Because of my Christian belief, I I do believe that Coach is in a better place right now, uh, especially seeing how he was the last couple years. But the human side of me, you know, I still want to go by his office. I would go by his home with Mrs. Smith and and his office with Brent and Miss Woods, and they would make him smile. And, you know, I, I still want to have lunch with him, and I still want to push him out to his van. But uh, I do know one day that I'll see him, and I'm really going to miss him. And if there's a model of how we should live our lives, I mean, we need no, look no further than coach's life because I'm honored, I'm truly honored to have been to have played for and been an assistant coach to the greatest coach ever. Not basketball, the greatest coach. I'm going to miss you, Coach. And next up, and by the way, you're seeing every race and ethnicity, every speech style, every religious type. Up comes this gigantic, tall, skinny, white kid, seven feet tall, outstanding UNC player, Eric Montrose. And these are the words that came to his mind about coach. Humility, conviction, dedication, compassion, loyalty, bravery, and love are a few words which I now know describe Coach Smith. But in 1988, I knew Coach Smith only as a winning coach. When my high school basketball coach said to me, would you be interested in hearing from the University of North Carolina and Dean Smith, my answer was yes. Later that summer, I pulled my truck to a stop in front of the open doors of our gymnasium, and one of my teammates ran out of the gym into the parking lot, and he said, you'll never believe who's here to watch you play in a pickup game. It's Dean Smith. And he's sitting in a rickety old plastic chair in the back corner. You see, even in Indiana, a state with their own legendary coach and Bob Knight, Coach Smith evoked emotion and respect. My father remembers early in my recruitment wanting to learn more about Coach Smith. So he and I began to read the book, The Carolina Corporation. It was then that we began to see a sketch 
of what would later become a deep understanding of Carolina basketball under head coach Dean Smith. In the fall of 1992, I sat with my Tar Heel teammates, many of whom are here today, in the locker room just back here. And we were setting goals for the upcoming season. We came to an agreement at the end of that meeting that our goal would be to end the season in New Orleans. The next day in our locker, and you guys remember this, was an 8 by 10 picture taped in the corner of our mirrors where it stayed all season long. The image in that picture was of the scoreboard inside the New Orleans Superdome. And it said, the University of North Carolina, 1993 national champions. The famed poet Robert Frost said, the afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Upon Coach Smith's passing, ESPN's Marty Smith used that quote to describe Coach Smith as the afternoon. And so many others, including his opposing coaches, the morning. Coach Smith has had a profound effect on our lives. For many of us and for many of you, the first thing we think of is a magical comeback, a championship, or a victory over a rival. But more impressive than those on-court achievements is the indelible mark he has left upon society. As a respected leader in the community, he stood tall for what he knew was right and garnered respect because of it. He's long been lauded for his efforts, but was shy to receive this attention because to him, it seemed like the only morally correct stance to take. And however great his passion was towards the game that he loved, it was displayed tenfold to us as his players. He brought the fight for desegregation to college sports and used the game of basketball as a vehicle to carry the message, a faith-based message of humanity onto a national stage. Coach Smith delivered this message publicly, but his message was not for show. He administered it to us as players as well. He mandated that unless he had a letter from our parents excusing us that we be in a place of worship once a week. He encouraged us to find something we were passionate about outside of the game of basketball and to share the same dedication we had for our sport with that cause. There was a recognition that basketball was not what should wholly define our lives. And for many of us, that way of thinking has been embraced. Dr. Martin Luther King said, Jr. said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Among many of the off-court experiences designed to give us a broader sense of appreciation for the opportunities we had was a trip to Butner Prison, where we practiced in front of some of the most forgotten individuals in our society. 
Numerous trips to children's hospitals also brought us face to face with the very spirit that made our sport so popular and increased our awareness that the world was not made up entirely of individuals as fortunate as we were. A familiar thought for the day used by Coach Smith is the serenity prayer from theologian and fellow Medal of Freedom winner Reinhold Niebuhr. It reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Leaders are unique in how they convey their beliefs. Coach Smith, he led with courage and wisdom and by example, giving all of us the opportunity to focus the lens through which we looked at life. You're not going to hear many NBA and college athletes sound like that, folks, and that's coming straight from a father figure and coach named Dean Smith. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Coach Roy Williams. And by the way, Smith won the Medal of Freedom in 2013, and not many coaches win that kind of an award. The man who brought up so many young men and turned them into men, the legend, the coach, the man, Dean Smith's story, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, the final segment in this hour-long celebration of one of the great men, one of the great coaches, one of the great teachers in American life. And we love to celebrate teachers, and the best coaches are just that. Listen to our Bear Bryant Hour, our Vince Lombardi Hour. They're startling. And what you can learn as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a school leader, as a church leader, well, it's all there, folks. Listen to the way these young men talk. 30, 40 years after playing for them, it's as if it was yesterday. And they still maintain relationships. By the way, Michael Jordan said this, Other than my parents, no one had a bigger influence on my life than him. He was more than a coach. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my second father. And by the way, this man racked up 879 wins, a 776 winning percentage, 17 ACC championships. And boy, that's tough. That is the tough basketball conference. And of course, two national championships. But here's why he's really remembered. It ain't the wins, folks. And now, the man who played as a JV player for Coach Smith went to Kansas, then came back to North Carolina, current coach Roy Williams. If you ever hear anybody say that Roy Williams said, Dean said this, you know it's a lie. Because <laughs> I've never referred to him anything other than Coach Smith. If you hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Bill Guthridge, that Bill did this, that's a lie too because he's always been Coach Guthridge. And Coach Smith used to say, he'd call and he'd say, Coach Williams, Dean Smith. I said, Coach, how you doing? Right. 
we're partners playing some good golf matches, and I'd always call him coach, and he'd say, you can call me Dean. I said, no, sir, I can't, and I never have. No, sir, I can't. Here's Roy Williams talking about something that startled him as a young player, and it had to do with where Coach Smith took his players to practice. I even dreamed of Coach Smith last night. Gospel truth. I hope I never hit another golf ball if that's a lie. So Coach knows I'm telling the truth. But some of the things about Coach Smith and one thing I thought of when it was said something about Coach taking them to Butner and practicing. It's one of the times I disagreed with Coach Smith. He took one of the teams when I was here to the state prison, maximum security prison. Everybody there had at least two life sentences. And they closed that door, that gate, and it is a scary feeling. And we're in there and we're doing a little clinic and everybody's having a good time. And Coach says, well, let's scrimmage those guys. Okay. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, Coach, you referee. Now, there's some players here that remember that. I said, Coach, you think I'm calling a foul on one of those guys? You are crazy. <laughs> and that was the truth. I didn't call a single foul. And not a lot of coaches are taking their boys to prisons to scrimmage, folks. Dean was always teaching. Roy Williams says here, with Dean Smith, with Coach Smith, the players were always first. The other thing I remembered last night about Coach Smith is he always wanted to make sure that you guys knew you were first, more important than anybody else. And I've tried to do that for 27 years as a head coach. One day, I was talking to a player, and I have a rule when a player's in the office, nobody interrupts. And if somebody calls, I don't take the call. And Jennifer Holbrook, who's sitting over here, was my secretary at that time. I've got a player in the office, and she opened the door and stuck her head in, and I looked, and I said, what? Because you just don't do that. And she said, former President Bush is on the phone. <laughs> I said, would you please tell him we'll call him back? True story. So when the player and myself, when we were finished and the player left, I walked out and I said, was that really President Bush or somebody like Mickey Bell? You know. <laughs> and she said, no, the Secret Service called first. And I said, we'll see if you can get him on the line. And so she got him on the line and I talked to him and he wanted to see if he could get two tickets to the next game. Swear to goodness. So two or three years ago, the Final Four was in Houston, and they honored President Bush. And Jimmy Nance was the MC, and Jimmy got up and told that story about Coach Roy Williams wouldn't even take his call. <laughs> and President Bush got up and said, the conversation I had with Coach Williams was fantastic because he said his players were more important than anybody. And that came from Coach Smith. And here's Roy Williams talking about the encouraging ethos that Smith drove 
at North Carolina. I would like to encourage all of you to tell people what they mean to you. At the private service with the family and the letterman, I told them a story that I had never told Coach Smith that I loved him. And I've regretted that. And I've told my players, encourage them to tell people that mean really mean something to you, tell them how much they mean to you. Coach Smith knew what he meant to me. I tried to give him a great deal of credit because I told the truth. Everything that I did, I got from him. Now, yesterday, I didn't guard the four corners quite as well as he would have wanted me to. And I look out, and I think Coach Larry Brown, who was one of the first guys to run the four corners, up here is Phil Ford, the best ever, Kenny Smith, Dick Grubar. I tried to give him credit every time I did anything, but I never really told him what he meant. So my players are sitting back there at the back, and they know this is the truth. We should all spend time telling people what they truly mean to us. I had a coach one time that said, if you coach a guy 30 years later, and I'm from the South, so a guy means go boy or girl, either one, so it makes no difference. But if you coach someone that 30 years later, you can still see something that you gave him and to really make sure it's something positive. Every day our lives will show something that Coach Smith gave us. The way we treat people, the way we treat people with respect and dignity, and the way we care, because that's what Coach Smith did. And here's Roy Williams closing things out. We're very fortunate to be here together in a wonderful, wonderful family. The Smith family, I thank you. We love you. I'm trying to speak on behalf of every one of us. Everybody has negatives. Everybody has pluses. Coach Smith had more pluses than anybody I've ever known. Let's raise our hand and point and thank him for the assist. Thank you. And again, we're at the Dean Dome. We're taking you there. And this was last year, but we'll play this every year because great teaching is great teaching and it's eternal. These themes last forever. Up last, to close out the ceremonies, Dean Smith's pastor, who he was very close to, and that's Reverend Robert Seymour. And he closed out everything with these words. What a wonderful tribute to have this huge crowd here today to honor his memory. But Dean was an extraordinarily humble man. He was known for his humility and giving other people the thanks and attention. And if he could have anticipated this gathering today, I think there's a good chance he might have said, don't do it. 
But this gathering was not for Dean. This gathering was for us. And it's so true. And by the way, the Reverend then went on to read a little poem that was absolutely beautiful. And I wanted to share one last story that I know about Dean Smith. And it came from a conversation I'd had with a friend. It turns out a country club had been courting Coach Smith. And Coach Smith was very close to John Thompson, who happened to be black. This was in the 1980s. And Dean Smith had a question for that country club. Can I bring Coach Thompson? And they said, well, no. African-Americans aren't allowed to play at this club. And they go, so then with all due respect, I ain't about to join. And he said, and that was the nature and character of Dean Smith. And this was the premier club where all the connected folks were, all the donors were. And he was teaching then, not too long after that club desegregated. His word got out that Dean wasn't going to play there. Always leading, always teaching, trying always to do the right thing. Not a perfect man, no one is. But my goodness, Dean Smith's life celebrated at the Dean Dome. We'll do it every year here. His story, all of his boys' story, in a sense, Chapel Hill's story while he was there. Here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.